Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that we really need to examine uh, what Jesus did in those last hours before he died for us. And uh, we pray that our minds will take it all in and our hearts will truly be able to rejoice and be full of gratitude and thanksgiving as we remember that fateful night and that morning where Jesus willingly went to his death. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, it's one thing uh, to say that you'll do something, but it's actually another thing to back it up, isn't it? Uh, it's one thing to promise to do something, but another thing to actually do so. And all the more when it actually costs you. Uh, I remember my dad uh, always tells me this story about how uh, when he, uh, in the 60s, went to Australia to study medicine and how uh, his brothers were meant to give him money on a regular basis, how uh, after about the first year, his brothers uh, sort of gave him money to support him and his fees less and less regularly and so he had to go and work to support himself. And uh, it really, I guess, affected him because he always felt that he could not rely on other people. And I think that that's true, isn't it? In the world that we live in, it's one thing where we promise to do something, but another to actually back it up, especially when it costs us something. And I think that's the theme of today's passage, where Jesus had already said last week that he would give his body, give his blood for his disciples. But as we look this week, the question that should be on our mind is, how will Jesus follow it up? Will, he, will Jesus actually follow it up with obedience? Now, uh, I want you to look at this map up here. Because I think that uh, it's helpful to understand what's happening because geographically we're moving around a bit today. So this is the map of Israel. Obviously, it's very small. This is Jerusalem. Okay, anyway, so we'll just zoom in on Jerusalem now. Okay, next slide. Okay, uh, is that better? Okay, go to the next one. Is that better, next one? Okay, that's better, right? It's slightly bigger. Okay, so uh, last week, um, uh, according to my map anyway... <laughs> Uh, this is where Jesus was when. Um, oh, sorry. No, this is where Jesus was uh, traditionally, where he had the Last Supper, and obviously they walk out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, this is where uh, the Mount of Olives is. Those of you who've been to Jerusalem, it's this range of mountains overlooking Jerusalem itself. And on that map, uh, you see there that Jesus walked out of the city and he's gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed with his disciples. And as we read today, Jesus was really affected about what was going to happen in the next few days. So, in verse 41, uh, if you turn back to, to your Bibles in chapter 22, he withdrew a stone's throw beyond the disciples and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, what was God's will for Jesus? Uh, if you remember, it's obviously tied to what he said during the Passover meal where he would give his body, where he would uh, give his blood. And already in chapter 9, if you go to the next slide, Jesus had said right from the beginning when he was identified as the Christ that he would give his body for people. He would suffer, isn't it? So Jesus said in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a moment on that very night at uh, the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And I want you to really imagine what it would be like if I said to you, okay, in the next 12 hours, you would be uh, whipped, you would be beaten up, you would be mocked, and you would be hung uh, from your hands and your feet from a cross where you would eventually die of suffocation. How would you feel? What emotions would run through you? Well, obviously, you'd be filled with deep distress, isn't it? You'd be filled with horror and agony. There would be great emotional strain on you. And this is where we see that Jesus, even though we know that He's fully God, fully divine, He's also fully human. Because as a human, He feels fear, He feels emotional turmoil, just like any normal human being. And that's why it says there that he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, in the Middle East, uh, from what I understand, the night temperature in Jerusalem, uh, I've never been to Jerusalem, but apparently it ranges from 2 degrees to 15 degrees. Now, our normal aircon temperature right now is, I think, 23 degrees. Right? It should be unless you fiddle with it and make it 24 to make it warmer. Right? And obviously, in this sort of temperature, you do not sweat, isn't it? So how can you sweat at 15 degrees or 2 degrees? Well, it's because of the emotional turmoil inside of Jesus that he felt as he knew what was going to happen that caused him to sweat in this way. Can you imagine how affected he must have been by what was going to happen to him soon after to sweat drops of blood? Not literally blood, but I mean just sweat in that way profusely. But I think that there is more to what Jesus fears than just the physical suffering. Uh, dying on the cross. Because it says there in verse 42, isn't it? If, it is, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Now the cup is not just a quaint, old-fashioned way of saying, take the future away from me, take my destiny away from me. But actually, the, the cup is an Old Testament way of talking about God's anger, God's judgment and God's wrath. Because many times in the Old Testament, whenever cup is mentioned, it, it's linked in with God's judgment. So if you look here in Jeremiah chapter 25, we're going to be going through a few Old Testament passages today which allude to what's happening. So look at Jeremiah chapter 25, look what it says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Uh, when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Or Psalm 75. Psalm 75 where it says, It is God who judges. He brings one down and exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Or Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. See, the real horror, I think, for Jesus is not just hanging on the cross from the nails and nails to his feet and dying of suffocation as you can't breathe, as you're going up and down. But I think what truly horrifies Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath, where the sins of generations of men and women, of people all over the world, uh, all the murders and the rapes and the anger and the gossip and the slander and the lust and the wicked thoughts will all be on Jesus' body. And for the very first time, he would not have a relationship with his father, but rather he would have God's wrath. 
And I think that's the horror that Jesus really experiences. And I think that's the thing that we miss out on, isn't it? Because whenever we focus on the sufferings of Jesus, people usually associate it with the cross, crucifixion. But I think that we miss out that the greatest suffering of Jesus is not just the physical suffering, but bearing God's wrath on His very body. That is what is the real suffering for Jesus, I think. The cup of God's wrath. So I think that... Um, Next slide. Uh, I don't know where you can see this. How come everything's so dark here? Maybe I'm getting older. But uh, now I'm sure that some of you remember this movie. I think it's only 19... I don't know. Was it? I can't remember when it was. Anyway, this is The Passion of the Christ by, uh, by Mel Gibson. You remember that guy, Mel Gibson? He's not very popular anymore. But, um, you know, uh, it was a very, very um, dramatic movie if any of you have watched it. And it, it, uh, it really brought out the suffering of Jesus. But I remember when I watched that movie, and after watching that movie, uh, thinking about it a bit more, that the, the movie, in a way, was trying to be faithful to the Bible, but in a way, it wasn't faithful to the Bible. Because it didn't bring out the suffering of Jesus bearing God's wrath on the cross. You know, it made a big deal about, you know, Jesus and the whipping and all his flesh and muscle being torn apart. It made a big deal of Jesus hanging on the cross and struggling to breathe. But it missed out on, on what Jesus really suffered on the cross, which was bearing God's wrath. So imagine, again, yourself in Jesus' shoes. It's uh, late at night, you're with your disciples in the Mount Olives, and you know that this is your future. And you know that it's God's will for you to go to this future. Would you do God's will? Would you continue along this path? To die for people who misunderstand you and mistreat you and may not even love you. Well, that's the future for Jesus, isn't it? And that's what we read right now. Because just as he finishes praying, just as he rebukes his disciples for sleeping, Judas comes along with the soldiers. And what happens? Well, in verse 47, while he was speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas one of the twelve was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, uh, in those days, um, I mean, obviously today we don't greet people with kisses. We're not French, right, people? Maybe the only people we kiss are little children, okay, on their foreheads or something. Uh, maybe today, you know, the closest thing is we have is a handshake. Okay, and I guess the handshake represents like uh, acceptance, friendship, things like that. And that's why, you know, in the English Football League, you know, there's some controversy where some players are accused of saying racist things and people don't want to shake their hands. The black players don't want to shake their hands. But the kiss is, is more than the handshake. Okay, a kiss in the ancient world was a sign of love and of loyalty and friendship of unity. So in other parts of the Bible, next slide, actually there are many parts in the Bible where it actually says that they are meant to, to show brotherly love and unity and loyalty by, by giving each other a kiss. Okay? So, the fact that Judas wants to betray Jesus with a kiss is like the most ultimate act of betrayal you can have because with the very act of love and loyalty and friendship, you're betraying your leader. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not a very violent person. But, you know, imagine how Jesus would have felt. 
This is the disciple that you've nurtured, one of the twelve you've eaten with, done ministry with, walked with, talked with, you know, helped in every way, and here he comes to kiss you. Now maybe you feel like punching him, right, Judas? Okay, but what does Jesus do? Jesus accepts what's going to happen, isn't it? Uh, the disciples, they react violently. One of them cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. But look at what Jesus says in verse 51. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Now, isn't that amazing? Because Jesus knows that he's going to his arrest and his death. And he's, he doesn't resist. He doesn't run away. He doesn't fight. But instead, he heals the very people who are coming to arrest him. This is the last miracle, the last healing that Jesus does in his earthly ministry. And who does he heal? He heals a soldier, a servant who has come to arrest him. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus would respond this way and willingly go with the people who want to arrest him. And we see here that Jesus himself knows that they have come to him not to give him a fair trial. This is a major theme as we will go along in the chapter 22, 23, 24. It is the un- injustice that Jesus will face. Because Jesus says in verse 53, right? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Now he's not saying that it's very dark at night, but he's saying that the people who have come to arrest him have not come to arrest him for noble purposes, for righteous purposes, for good purposes. Rather, they've come for wicked purposes, for evil. They are forces of darkness. And even knowing this, even knowing that they've come for evil and wickedness and darkness, Jesus willingly goes with him, with them. He willingly goes to an unjust trial, an unjust death. Now, story goes on. Uh, next slide. Okay, um, oh, okay, this is a small one. I want a bigger one. Okay, sorry. I wasn't sure which one looked better, so I scanned two for you. So remember we're here uh, where Jesus was arrested, the Mount Olives. And traditionally, uh, this is where the high priest's house was. And so Jesus made their way and Peter following behind all the way down. Quite, quite a long way, I suppose, down to the high priest's house in order to be questioned. And uh, they probably, next slide, the high, this is a, a model of the, the I guess, the, the high class houses in those days, the ones that Dustin wrote. Right? And uh, so this is the high priest's house, similarly would have looked at. So obviously, you know, um, they have a big courtyard, they have big windows and doors because, you know, there's no air conditioning or ceiling fans in those days, so you, you know, need the breeze. So, Peter would have congregated here with quite a few other people. And as he's there, uh, he's approached by, it says here, a servant girl. So in verse 56, it says, A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it, Woman, I don't know him, he said. Now, It's very important, I suppose, to us why it is recorded that a servant girl approached Peter. Because 
in Jewish society, it was a patriarchal society, so men were more valued than women. They were seen as more important than women. And also, as a patriarch, it was a, a society which had respect for age, so older was better than younger. So here was a person who was a woman, not a man, and here was a person who was a young person, not an old person, and on top of that, she was a servant. So here was someone who was like the lowest rung of that society, right? And yet, when she challenged Peter, Peter denied Jesus. And as we will see, it wasn't just a slip of the tongue, it wasn't something which was an exception, because as the night wore on, as an hour went past, a little while went past, other people challenged Peter, and he said three times altogether, I don't know Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about, I don't know Jesus. Now, why is this important to us? Well, I think the first thing is it shows that Jesus was correct, isn't it? He had divine knowledge. When just a few hours before, when they had the Passover meal, Peter had said, I will go and follow you to prison and to death. And, and what did Jesus say? Well, up here, right? Verse 22, chapter 22. Next slide. Right? Oh, I don't have it up here. Okay, doesn't matter. In chapter 22, which is just in the page before, Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me, you will deny three times that you know me. So that the, just that night, just that night, a few hours before, Peter had made the bold claim that he would always stand by Jesus. And Jesus at that dinner said, you will deny me three times before morning. And here we see that Jesus was right. Jesus had divine knowledge of what was going to happen in the future. But I think there's another reason why this is recorded for us. It is to show the difference between Peter and Jesus. Because Peter was challenged by a servant girl and he did not continue to be faithful to Jesus or to God. Jesus is being challenged by the most powerful people of Jewish society and as we will see, he continues to obey God's will. Right? Servant girl before Peter and Peter falls like a jellyfish or a deck of cards, right? The high priest and all the forces of the Roman Empire and the soldiers against Jesus, and Jesus still continues to be faithful. The third point, I think, is to show what Jesus really goes through in his suffering for his people. Because he's already been betrayed by Judas, one of the twelve, and now the leader of his the apostles deserts him. And that's why it must be so sad for Jesus at the very end, isn't it? Because in verse 61, the Lord Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word that the Lord who had spoken to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went upside and wept bitterly. So you remember how I said that in the design of the olden buildings, they didn't have aircon or ceiling fans, so they had lots of windows and open doorways so that the breeze could come through? Well, Jesus was probably sitting there or walking from one place to another, being guarded, and he saw Peter. And at that point in time, he knew that Peter had deserted him. Now, how would Jesus have felt? How would you have felt during that time? That here you are suffering here is your hour of greatest need. You'll be betrayed by Judas and now the leader of your apostles has denied you three times. You are all alone. 
you are completely alone. Well, the story goes on. Verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many insulting, other insulting things to him. Now remember Jesus had said to the soldiers who were coming to him, the hour of darkness, right? This is your hour, the hour of darkness. So we really knew that Jesus knew that this trial would not be an honorable, noble, uh, godly trial. But it would be one of wickedness, evil and darkness. See, don't forget, where is Jesus at this time? Where is Jesus at this time? He's at the house of the high priest of God's people. As the, it's like you know being at the Pope's house or whatever, right? It's like being at the, the house of the Archbishop of the Anglican Church. Uh, you know, it's like this is the religious, the highest pinnacle of the religious leadership in Israel. And you would expect them to be godly, to be righteous, to be holy. But instead what is happening? Instead of questioning Jesus and trying to find out the truth, instead of being just, instead of being sincerely looking for the, the response of Jesus, what do they do? They beat him up, they mock him, they cover his eyes and they begin punching and slapping him and mocking his prophetic ability by asking him, who hit you? Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Because sometimes I think we romanticize the death of Jesus on the cross. Right? We romanticize it. But I don't think it's very romantic. Uh, I was going to put up some uh, pictures, but I thought that it would just distract you from the sermon. But I want you to think for a moment of the people who uh, are under interrogation in, say, uh, Afghanistan, or Iraq, or in Abu Ghraib, or people who have been tortured by Pol Pot, or Stalin. You know, people who have been beaten up. Think of the black, blue eyes, the blood from the noses, the swollen lips, the bruised bodies. See, that is what was happening to Jesus at that night. That's what it means when you look at the passage. Obviously, Luke doesn't record all the bloody details, but that's what it is, isn't it? The suffering of Jesus doesn't just happen at the cross or under the, the Romans. It began the very night under questioning in the high priest's house. And that's why I guess Isaiah 53 was so important to us when we read it earlier. Because if you look at Isaiah 53, uh, if you look up here again, all right, just look at this part, that, uh, the section, part of the section that we read just a moment ago. Uh, it says here, it talks of the suffering servant, the suffering servant who Isaiah prophesied would suffer for other people. In verse 7 it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? Now, that fits the picture here, isn't it? Jesus is just an innocent person. He is brought before the religious leaders and he's beaten up. He willingly goes there, he doesn't cry out. But yet, he is the suffering servant who willingly goes to his suffering. Now, in the morning, um, it feels like a long time because... Uh, as we look at uh, Luke, uh, time is sort of stretched out, right? It's only a few hours, but there are many, many passages and verses which explain it. 
But really, it's just 12 hours or maybe 14 hours from the Passover meal and it's daylight now. And at daybreak, in verse 66, he's taken, we don't know where the, the, the council, the elders of the people meet. Uh, he's taken from the house of the, the high priest to meet the Sanhedrin or the council of the other leaders. So they meet the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them. If you're the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. So here they've they moved from the house of the high priest to another location where there's a much larger group of religious leaders. And they asked him uh, what seems to be a very innocent question. Are you the Messiah? Tell us. But Jesus refuses to answer because he knows that this is not a desire to find out the truth, isn't it? It's a desire to trap Jesus. Because as we've been reading the book of Luke, already we know two things. We know that the religious leaders have made up their minds about Jesus and they've made up their minds about wanting to kill Jesus. So again, if you look up here on these slides, Luke chapter 19, when Jesus made his way down from the Mount Olives, remember the Mount Olives I showed you, he he came down regularly from there, and his disciples began praising God in loud voices and they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What did the Pharisees say? The Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They refused to believe that Jesus was someone who was the Christ who came in the Lord's name. So they really know the answer. In Luke chapter 20, the next slide, uh, when they tried to test Jesus and said, you know, uh, who gave you this authority? And Jesus said, well, let me ask you, who gave... John the Baptist, his authority, and they said, well, we don't know. We refused to answer that question because they did not believe in John's testimony that Jesus was the Christ. So we really know that they do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. Again, next slide. And we also know from Luke 11 and Luke 19 that uh, all the leaders were seeking to catch Jesus out and to kill him. So that's why Jesus says, look, if, even if I tell you I am the Christ, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Because they are not really interested in the truth. They don't want the truth. Like Jack Nichols said, said they can't handle the truth. Right? Okay? What they really want is a reason to, to punish and to kill Jesus. Now, what Jesus does say is very important though. Because he says in verse 69, From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Now what does Jesus mean when he says from now on? I think he's saying that from now on, they will no longer see him as a man, as a weak human or as a carpenter. But instead they will see him as the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty God. Now Son of Man here is not just um, another way of saying human, right? I am the Son of Man. Andrew is the Son of Man. No. The Son of Man is a title. And we've seen this a few times in the book of Luke where it's a title 
of one given authority and power and glory. Okay, so in Daniel chapter 7, right, next slide. Uh, this Son of Man person is the one who comes to the clouds of heaven. He approaches God and was led into God's presence and he was given authority, glory and sovereign power and all peoples and nations and men of every language will worship him. That means he is God. Only God can be worshipped. So Jesus is actually saying that he is a God who sits at the right hand of God and when you sit at the right hand of God, you sit in judgment of people. So what actually Jesus is saying is very offensive. He's saying, look, you are judging me, but from now on you will see me as God judging you. And the Jews obviously understand what's happening because they ask him in verse 70, are you then the son of God? And Jesus replied, you say that I am. So he's not saying, no, I'm not, but you say I am and I'm not rejecting it. And they say, why do we need to any more testimony? He's already guilty. And what Jesus guilty of? He's guilty of blasphemy. Because in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, Jesus has made himself God and that is blasphemy. Blasphemy is where you take something of God and you lower it down to our level. So they're saying that Jesus has lowered God's glory by saying that he is equal to God. Now I want you to think about that uh, discussion or you know, interaction for a moment. Because they want the truth, right? They want the facts from Jesus and Jesus is giving them the facts. He is the same level as God. But by telling them who he really is, they are saying that he is bringing God down to his level. But instead, they should have recognized that Jesus really is the level of God. See, it's a bit like someone saying to you, okay, tell me who are you, who are you, right? Tell me who you are. And you say, oh, I'm Chinese. And they say, oh, no, 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 you're not Chinese. For that, your line will, will, will kill you. You know, that's really unjust. Isn't it? That's, that's, there's something wrong with that, isn't it? Because Jesus is actually telling them who he really is, but instead of acknowledging Jesus for who he is, they, they accuse him of bringing God down and blaspheming. So I want you to think about this whole, I guess, night and morning. And just think about what Jesus has gone through. Because Jesus is God. He is God's Son. He is the Savior. And he is betrayed by his closest disciples. He is deserted by the leader of the apostles. He is beaten and mocked like a terrorist in a Middle Eastern prison. And he is an innocent man who answers honestly and gets charged with death. Now why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus go through this terrible experience? Well, he did it for you and for me. And I think that as you think about this passage, as you reflect on the reality of what Jesus has done for you, I think it's supposed to elicit some emotion within us. We should feel great gratitude, almost unspeakable gratitude and thankfulness that the Son of God, that God Himself, would choose to suffer like that for us. Uh, I remember as I was preparing the sermon one night, I was just reflecting on it when I was lying in bed. I was thinking, it's so hard to wrap your mind around it that God's Son would choose to be humiliated this way, choose to suffer this way, just for you and me. And that our sins are the reason why Jesus went through all these things. Now, again, 
since I got started the movie, I thought I'm going to end with another movie. Right, so there's this movie called Saving Private, Saving Private Ryan. Okay, all these are all old movies. You see, I, I need to watch more new movies, or maybe the older movies are better. But you know, in that movie, uh, basically the whole premise is, anyway, I'll tell you the ending. Uh, right, uh, Private Ryan is saved, but a lot of people die to save him. And because all these people die to save him, it affects his life, and uh, he, lives, he lives his whole life in gratitude for what they've done. And I can't think that, isn't that the same thing for us? That it's not just a man who died for us, but God, God's Son, suffered so much humiliation and pain for me and for you. We should be overflowing, our hearts should be bursting with gratitude for what He's done. And He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. And all these things He did because of our sins. Well, I hope that as you look at this passage today, there are no lessons to say, oh, you must do this or you must do that. You know, there's no application as this, oh, you know, now you must go and pray more or tithe more or, you know, evangelize more. But I think that as we read this passage, really it's meant to fill us with a sense of great sorrow in a way for Jesus, anger in a way at what happened to him, but most of all, it should fill us with great gratitude and thankfulness that God's Son, God Himself, willingly went through that experience because of His love for you and because of your sins. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that what Jesus went through that night was just a beginning of the horrors and the suffering that He was about to experience but even as we read of what he went through just that night and that morning, help us to see the depth of the pain and the humiliation and the suffering that he underwent. That though he was God, though he was your son, yet he was betrayed by Judas, one of his twelve apostles. He was deserted by Peter the leader of the apostles. He was beaten, he was smacked, he was mocked, he was bruised in every way, just like a common terrorist in a jail somewhere. And he was falsely and wrongly accused for being who he really was, that he was God. We pray that as we, ex- we really embrace and understand what happened that day, that night, that our hearts will be filled with gratitude and that we will always be thankful, truly thankful from the depths of our being for what Jesus went through because He was loving us and saving us and sacrificing Himself for us. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.